Hey everybody, welcome to Twig 40, the big four zero. It's hard to believe that we're, we're already at 40 episodes here, but um, here we are. And today we've got a full house. We've got myself, uh, Joe Kim. We've got Mishka back from his vacation in, in Spain and Monaco or wherever you've <laughs> been going. Why, why would it be Monaco? Like every time I'm not on this podcast, the number one thing that he keeps saying that I'm living a jet set life. I don't even know. That, that's like some kind of 80s term. I, mean, <laughs> I know. I, all I do is I, 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 I see the Instagram posts on a, you know, you're, you're on a boat. <laughs> yeah. I live by the sea. <laughs> there are boats. You live by the ocean. I mean, it's it's normal. All and right, is not so far away. We, we also have uh, Eric Kress and Adam Telfer. And today we're going to be covering four articles. The first is Subscriptions are the Future of App Monetization by our good friend Eric uh, Seifert, or as um, Eric Kress says, Seifert from Mobile Dev Memo. We're next going to cover Mark, Mike Morhaime, the highlights and lessons of nearly three decades at Blizzard from VentureBeat. Next, Glue Mobile, highly likely to be estimates for Q2 2019 by Seeking Alpha. And finally, we are going to talk about HQ Trivia lays off approximately 20% as it preps subscriptions from TechCrunch. But uh, ahead of jumping into the articles, we do have a few updates. You want to kick us off on that, Eric? Sure. You know, to keep some transparency here, we're, we're looking at Dr. Mario World um, and what a train wreck this one is. <laughs> so despite the fact that Nintendo is finally kind of making games for mobile with some of their IP, uh, this thing is disastrous. Like 4 million downloads, only about 200,000 in revenue. Even the Japanese are not spending on this game, you know, but still, you know, 53% of the revenue is coming from Japan, which is kind of typical. Um, but, you know, I, I, it's really disappointing that this thing didn't do as better because I think it is more aligned with mobile. But I'm going to let um, Adam take it over and tell me why this thing is not working because he is the expert. <laughs> yeah, um, they definitely fooled me on this one. When we look back at kind of the episode, when we were talking about it, uh, I think we're all kind of skeptical about the core gameplay working. Um, but with the partnership with Line, I really felt like Line could actually drive Nintendo to build another lasting mobile franchise. Um, similar to what they did with Fire Emblem and Dina, uh, with Nintendo partnering with Dina on that one. Dina. Uh, Dina. Dina. Okay, sorry. DNA. DNA. DNA? <laughs> DNA. No. <laughs> All right, whatever. I've heard this will be a whole episode of terrible. I think I think before you move on, it's really important to answer: Is it Mario or Mario? Like, <laughs> Mario. 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 Okay. <laughs> Damn Europeans. <laughs> <laughs> um, but overall, like if you play the game, I actually felt that the game wrapper is actually built properly, at least like from from my initial playthrough. It's just there's big, big signals that there's big issues with their core gameplay, gotcha design, and level design. Uh, all aspects of that are pretty terrible, all kind of translating to why their revenue is so low. Um, I'll play longer and actually get a better sense of what's going on, especially with their, their difficulty curve. But my sense is that it's just... It's, their level design is pretty broken. And it looks like Nintendo just didn't understand what the Saga formula, how it actually works. So, yeah, sad situation. Yeah, I mean, just a testimony to my ignorance is that I didn't even know that's how Dr. Mario played. So I started playing the game and I'm like, this sucks. It's not any fun. <laughs> I think mobile game develop guys are probably more used to the traditional match three. And that's probably what they were expecting from this game. And when they got this thing that's a little bit convoluted and wacky, I don't know. I imagine that it doesn't really appeal to more 
broadly to a core audience of Nintendo, but even the core audience is not spending on this game. So to your point, they probably just screwed up the way, um, you know, the uh, progression works and did not really get the formula right. Yeah, it got um, the worst of both worlds between yeah. Nintendo fans and um, kind of like casual match three fans. Um, yeah. But I, and I also know that from like playing Dr. Mario, Dr. Mario is actually one of the more complex and difficult kind of puzzle mechanics out there, like mm. compared to bubble shooting or bejeweled or anything like this. Like you can get into some pretty nasty situations in Dr. Mario. Um, and it's just kind of the nature of that, that mechanic. Okay. All right. Well, the second one we're talking about is kind of update on Harry Potter and, um, God, I, I, you know, I hate to be right on this one, but the Jesus, this is not looking good at all. I mean, it looks, right. what's that? <laughs> you don't hate to be right. No, <laughs> no I, I, I love to be right. I just like to say, it. I, I hate to be right. Um, but it looks like the re- retention is very weak on this. So they're sitting at 15 million downloads with 7.5 million revenue, which isn't bad, right? But the problem is, is that the spending is just going down dramatically uh, every day. Um, they may have some tricks up their sleeves with other big events or big, you know, other activities. But from my point of view, I think it's going to be a real struggle to get to the, even the 50 million in the next 12 months, given where the trajectory is. Um, so it looks like they'll probably do five million in, in each of the first two months, but the but it likely will decline pretty precipitously. You know, so the the point here is it started off really strong, like much stronger than Jurassic, but it's kind of leveled off to the same revenue range as Jurassic had for a long time, like the two hundred three three hundred k per day. But now it's declining down below the one fifty k range, and it's just not looking good at all. So, you know, it may be well ahead of Jurassic Park at this point, but but um, it's almost one hundred. But the but the revenue, sorry, the revenue growth rate continues to decline. You know, the basically the RPI is now higher for Jurassic Park than Harry Potter, um, and I think that this actually could indicate um, issues of retention amongst the golden cohort, much less the the secondary cohorts. But really, it's hard to say that with certainty with sensor tower data. It's just kind of extrapolating. But again, I think my prediction of fifty million is kind of probably where it's going to end up. It could be worse. I think. So what, you're predicting 50 million for the year? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, cert- and certainly not the, the 100 million in the first whatever. Yeah, right, right. Oh, bad. First month. <laughs> that, that, was, that was the sensor tower uh, prediction. App Annie. App Annie. Yeah. That was App Annie? Yeah. Wow. Super bullish. Yeah. So. So I have a question regarding that. I mean, uh, we're talking about location-based games. And, and as, as you're well aware, I don't know anything about Harry Potter. Uh, but um, I know a thing or two about about um, Walking Dead, and and especially there's a company here in Finland. And I think we talked about it in Twig 15, so you guys can go back there and and talk and and listen to it. But basically, we talk about this company called Next Games, and they're mostly known for their game Walking Dead: No Man's Land. It's sort of like an XCOM uh, version of No Man of, of Walking Dead, and it you know did relatively well. So. Uh, about six months ago, they they announced they actually released their location-based game under Walking Dead IP called Walking Dead: Our World, and um, it was I would say wasn't too successful because the stock went from eight dollars to one dollar. So um, that's that's probably one of the worst releases ever. <laughs> and um, I mean, yeah. So so they had a lot of problems in in terms of just technical problems, problems scaling up, and in 
I don't know. It was just it was just horrible. You can go to Twig fifteen. It was it's just naturally sad to to think about. It. Nevertheless, that the, my question is, um, lately they the this company, the Snacks Games, uh, released. Um, they did a stock release, uh, not stock release, uh, but uh, press release, saying that they've secured Stranger Things IP and they're going to build a location based Stranger Things game that is going to launch in 2020 and stock naturally rose by about 40% afterwards. So what do you guys think about this? And, and keep in mind, just another caveat about next games. And I, I don't mean to, to wail on next games. I'm just, I'm just interesting about this, but they also released uh, blade runner 249. So if you, if you remember that was uh, 2049, there was, there was this movie with Ryan Gosling that, uh, most of people don't remember, but they're supposed to release uh, a game in adjacent to this movie. And this game actually came like about two years later than the movie that, that wasn't too good. So given this fact, they're, they're not always hitting their, their dates and they're releasing a Stranger Things game based on their Walking Dead game that wasn't very successful and had a lot of technical problems. Like, what do you, what do you guys think of this? I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of puzzled. I mean, I'll just go back to my point last week is that this uh, Pokemon Go thing was like lightning in a bottle and replicating these type of games with other IPs sounds like a good idea, but ultimately it doesn't seem to be a great idea, right? I mean, I, I, I don't think Stranger Things is any stronger than certainly, you know, Harry Potter. And I don't even know if it's a question of game design at this point. I think it's just a question of, you know, what games are going to get people off their ass in and wandering around neighborhoods collecting stuff, you know, and, and Pokemon has that kind of like fervent fanboy fan base that loves that stuff. Um, I just don't know if any other IP is really going to going to match that type of uh, fervor, I suppose. Yeah, for me, I, I've actually worked with some of those guys and I, I like them. So it's hard for me to say anything too negative, but. Yeah, I personally like you know like Eric and like you. I'm not really a location based kind of guy, so I'm I'm, uh, I'm I don't. I think it's difficult in in terms of being successful on the location based side. I actually really like their original strategy around No Man's Land. I thought that was an extremely well executed game from a gameplay perspective. I just felt like the systems design you know could have could have been helped. Um, and, but I, I do think that next games in terms of like the technical talent is, is, you know, pretty, pretty good. Mm. So, okay. What I was really asking, should I invest or not? No. That seals the deal. <laughs> so, so I'm not, okay. didn't the, like the CEO had died of an overdose or something like that. <laughs> no. <laughs> was that a different company? <laughs> Did I mess that up? All right. What company was that? <laughs> All right. So we're definitely not talking about next games. Their CEO is well and healthy, to my knowledge. Everything is going great. Eric mentioned so right. totally different things. Um, so we're, that's HQ Trivia. We're going to talk about this. Oh, oh sorry. 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 I'm getting, I'm getting the, our terrible companies confused. Okay. Right. Let's jump into the article. Adam, you want to take take uh, take the first one? Okay. Let's yeah. Let's just jump right into that first article. So the first article is subscriptions are the future of app monetization, uh, and as I said before, this is from our friend Eric at Mobile Dev Memo, um, and basically the summary of this article is that uh, Eric is arguing that in-app subscriptions are the future of monetization on mobile. 
Um, and essentially his argument, uh, this goes across both apps and games, so this is not just game specific, um, but his argument is that more games within the top US grossing use subscriptions than don't. So that's uh, the, the games that are actually including them. Um, so the, in terms of top 10, the games that are including them include things like Clash of Clans and Fortnite, um, but things like Candy Crush is the only game slash app in the top 10 that does not offer subscriptions. Uh, everything else that's Netflix, Hulu, Pandora, et cetera, all offer subscriptions. Um, and essentially, Eric is arguing about the potential of subscriptions and how more games should uh, push for it. Um, essentially saying that say functionality within games can unlock a massive monetization potential um, by essentially um, trying to include subscription revenue so that then with mobile marketers there's stronger signals earlier in the event driven funnel uh, to actually drive um, stronger um, marketing optimizations. Um, this is of course a lot stronger for things like apps with things like Netflix, Hulu, Pandora, uh, where you've got dating, music, video streaming, very, very well fits within subscriptions, but even within games itself, um, saying that there is plenty of potential here. Uh, one of the big things, one of the big, um, one of the big pros here is that Apple and Google cut actually drops from 30% to 15% within year two. Um, and as I said before, um, subscriptions send earlier signals to event-driven UA. Um, as well as subscription revenue is actually easier to model into LTV than say in-app purchase uh, whale-based models. Um, so that's kind of the summary of the article. Um, so my take on this uh, in terms of adding more subscriptions within games, um, one thing to keep in mind within this article, this is very much US top grossing, uh, not worldwide. Uh, if we actually take a look at that, but the last 30 days, at least on iOS worldwide, four out of 10 are apps versus uh, I think it was eight or seven out of 10 in the US with only about three to five offering subs. There's a few Chinese games there that I wasn't actually aware of if, if they offer subscriptions. Um, and on Google Play, there's actually no apps in the top 10 worldwide with only about two of those games actually offering subs. So that would, that would be uh, PUBG Mobile and Clash of Clans. Um, but Overall, still, even knowing these data points, subscriptions overall, I would agree with Eric being very, very good for the industry. Um, of course, just the, the headline there about less whale-based free-to-play and a lot driving a lot higher conversion across a wider player base is definitely a good thing. Uh, subscription then kind of being the target as a designer to be that kind of like baseline of experience, um, I think is very, very compelling um, and also a lot better uh, for, for design. Um, so far, uh, a lot of games are actually using direct purchase kind of subscription models. So if you think about Clash of Clans and Clash Royale, you actually have to repurchase the Battle Pass each month, uh, which is definitely not optimal. Um, so I would definitely push developers that are doing this type of approach to really actually use the Apple model of in-app subscriptions. Um, and in terms of what types of designs you could go for, um, I think some of the best ones would be, of course, the Battle Pass model, which we've seen already the success with things like Fortnite, um, Clash of Clans, Clash Royale just recently, uh, which is doing very, very well. Um, but also uh, games like World of Tanks has kind of shown um, a very strong um, monetization model through subscriptions. Um, but of course, just as I repeated from, say, last week, uh, not all games can actually offer subscriptions. 
Um, this is actually pretty limited to deep economies, just because uh, my sense is that subscriptions just can't compete with in-app driven titles. Um, even if you if you launch a subscription in in-apps within the same game, it's going to be very, very difficult for subscription to actually surpass the revenue of the in-app purchases. I think there's only a few games that actually drive that. That'd be WoW and maybe World of Tanks. Um, and in the case of WoW, I just don't think they're trying to drive significant revenue from in-app purchases. Um, uh, but I could be wrong. Like even World of Warcraft has significant cosmetic economy there. Um, but my sense is still subscriptions can be seen as kind of a strong high conversion early entry feature. Um, I would kind of, again, kind of pair this up with something like subscription diamonds, annuities, um, things that are really, really driving a strong conversion to the economy um, and giving players plenty of reasons to retain within the game itself. And I think Clash of Clans, Clash Royale um, have both brought up some very, very compelling subscription offers. So overall, my take is that yes, games should definitely offer more subscriptions, but uh, it's not likely to actually surpass in-app purchase revenue um, and implementations by developers should not come at the expense of in-app purchase economies. Um, Eric? Uh, I think subscriptions are awesome. I think uh, Wall Street absolutely loves them because uh, they're predictable revenue streams. I think it's great um, to implement that thing as much as you can. But I think I agree with Adam. It's like, you gotta be really careful, right? Cause you can't, first of all, give away too much on subs like currency, et cetera, anything that would kind of change the uh, trajectory of in-app purchases. You have to keep it like baseline, you know, to make sure that you have the whale economy for the big spenders. Now, some people would argue that if you get higher levels of conversion, then you won't it won't require as much uh, whale type economy. But I just don't think the way these games are set up these days, that is, true and i think i would the risk to go on a limb here is that if you don't get the whale economies these games are just not going to do as well so i just be really careful about giving away too much um uh i'm i'm kind of a big fan i actually do these monthly subscriptions uh which give you the coins but uh, to note adam's other point is that a lot of these things are opt-in where you have to actually do it every time every month and i think he's right they should have it so it's automatically recurring I think that would actually be more beneficial to uh, the longer term LTV for a lot of these games. So I'm sure maybe there's some challenges implementing that. I don't know. But, um, but I think the final point here is that, look, at, at the end of the day, any type of thing that helps conversion in this economy, in, the, in these apps, is actually really, really good for the, for the industry as a whole. I think the biggest challenge with mobile in general is that this, there's such a low level of conversion that um, it's really, really hard to make you know, games that make a lot of money. You know? And so um, if there are other ways of getting people to spend and this you know, gets the percentage from 3% to 4%, that's a huge amount of growth for the industry. So um, any, any you know, different models that um, uh, attempt to improve conversion is great for the industry. Cool. From my perspective, I think that you know there's a lot of depth to implementing subscriptions optimally that many people, perhaps even most people, just don't think about enough. So I do expect to see a lot of people implement subscriptions suboptimally to the point that uh, both Adam and Eric have already talked about with respect to the economy. So I mainly want to just convey a word of warning when some you know, typical dumbass game exec tells their team to implement subscriptions and then you wind up hosing your economy. The concern is that a lot of developers who roll out subscriptions are not going to plan well enough or have a deep enough economy to sustain continued spend. So if you run out of content, you can see ARPU proof flatten and retention take a hit. 
final point is, as uh, monetization expert Jeff Witt once taught me a few years ago, you're generally price anchoring against subscriptions. So subscriptions, generally speaking, need to be the most lucrative from a value perspective, but it's uh, very difficult to understand how much to give. It's There's no exact science here right now. And so um, until someone comes up with a good methodology, again, we're likely going to see a lot of people mucking around suboptimally on this stuff for a while. Yeah. Um, so it, I, I am, I'm also as Eric, I'm, I'm very much pro subscription in, in many cases, just as a player and also as a, as a game maker. Um, but I would say, you know, if you have a, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail and it kind of feels the same thing here where we're, every, you know, we're trying to put subscription everywhere, but there, there are a lot of limitations that comes with a subscription based model. First of all, you need to have the DAU, right? So it's usually for the games that are, you know, with with the higher DAU, and the second, which is even more difficult. I mean, it's the prerequisite for the high DAU is the retention. For a subscription based service, we're talking about games where you'd be playing paying subscription for year two, three. You know, it's it's the question of not only the game being good enough, of course, but it's also the question of the content. Like, how much content do you really need in order to have players playing it for years? And the uh, the answer is probably insane amount of content and in the end it comes into this sort of a question uh, between like you know subscription model and and actually the sort of a hybrid model that we're seeing and and if we're talking about hybrid monetization model youtube is a great example you have youtube for free and you just have to watch tons of ads that are super annoying and you you know sometimes five seconds sometimes more but then you have also the subscription service which basically kills the ads and then you also have in-app purchase or, or purchase inside uh, YouTube where you can buy unique content in terms of, you know, series and movies, rent them and so forth. So what I want to say about, you know, kind of use YouTube as an example that everybody knows, really the subscription model is actually hurting ad monetization. And it doesn't really hurt in-app purchases. So I think the future is kind of going into both directions. So we'll still have more of these super casual games that are using atomization as main uh, revenue driver games that we're going to talk about some later, you know, some trivia games, but also games like, you know, words with friends and, and other games that are, that are very ads driven. And the second part, what we're going to see even more and more, and we're seeing now at the top is the hybrid model where we have, um, where we have um, strong in-app purchase monetization, but we also have strong subscription uh, model. And those are kind of living together, but it pushes out the ad ads away. So you kind of have to choose when you're, go, when you're adding more monetization, whether you're going to go with ads or whether you're going to go with subscription. Uh, a year ago, it was all about ads, and now it's all about subscription, but in the end, it's all about your game. Cool. All right, so moving on to the next article. It's about Mike Morham, the highlights and lessons of nearly three decades at Blizzard. And just a quick uh, summary of the article. So, so Mike Morham of Blizzard fame, who left last year during BlizzCon and uh, handed over the reins to J. Allen Branch at that time, AKA Jab. But he was honored at a gaming event in Barcelona for his 27 years at Blizzard, which to a lot of people working in San Francisco, I mean, even two years is, is a long time, but 27 years is quite ridiculous. During that event, Morheim talked about some of his greatest lessons from his nearly three decades there. And reading through the transcript of his interview, my personal interpretation of top three takeaways associated with the success of Blizzard were, number one, the importance of culture, number two, 
their focus on quality, and number three, about just focusing on doing the right thing for their games. And so to the first point, uh, Morheim argued that Blizzard's greatest creation was not any of its games, but its co company culture. And this is a culture that focused on high quality products and that created an environment that allowed creative talent to do their best work. And if I'm being honest, I think structural, structurally and culturally, the majority of organizations just aren't organized in this way or have this kind of culture. If I, if I think about most of the game studios and organizations out there, and it may actually be, I, I, I would even argue that Blizzard now may be going away from those core principles that allowed it to achieve its current level of success. The second point is the focus on quality in more detail and Morheim recounted the story of shipping Diablo in 1996. So the game was supposed to ship ahead of Christmas but wasn't going to make it. They actually pulled the entire StarCraft dev team and put them on Diablo to help get it out, but they still just weren't able to move fast enough. And so the point that Morheim make, made was that instead of caving into pressure to release ahead of Christmas, they focused more on just creating the highest quality game, game they could and they wound up missing Christmas and shipping on December 31st. So they missed Christmas, but Diablo wound up becoming the best-selling game of 1997. And a good quote from Morheim uh, was where he stated, everybody sets out to do it, it being the focus on quality. Then you run into the realities of the world and the pressures of the world, the desire to achieve whatever the plan is, to make whoever the stakeholders are, to make sure they're happy. It may be budgetary issues. It may be timeline issues. It may be people getting too attached to ideas that are there and not wanting to change them. All of these things are in the balance. There's a saying that perfect is the enemy of great because if you strive for perfection, you'll maybe never ship. There's a point that's good enough. But I do think there's so much competition out there that if you don't hit the quality bar, the product will just fail. So definitely a, a very... Uh, important point I think that Morheim makes there. And then finally, his third point is he talked about the importance of just doing the right thing. And he recounted two stories where Blizzard had to sort of stop and reset. The first story was about releasing the auction house for Diablo 3. I'm not sure if, uh, if, if folks in the audience remember that, but um, the auction house got a lot of fans upset and fundamentally unbalanced the loot system because when they designed it, loot and auction were actually designed separately without considering the other systems holistically. And long story short, Morheim went to the game team and asked, if you could do whatever you wanted, would you snap your fingers and remove the auction house? And the team responded, yes, absolutely. Then Morheim responded, okay, then that's what you should do. Uh, and the second story was about a game called Project Titan that they were working on and that they worked on for quite a long time. They failed to control the scope on the game and it was just overly ambitious. It wound up looking like two games in one. And the project became so big and so unwieldy that the project team came to Morheim and requested time to redo all the tooling and tech to be more productive making that sort of two-headed monster game. However, instead of doing that, Morheim asked the team to take a couple of months to stop and think about other ideas. And then he asked them, if we were to start right now and do anything we wanted, what other things could we do? So the team took two months and they actually came up with different game design, game design ideas, which one of them actually led to Overwatch. Anyway, the article is actually a pretty cool look at the inner workings of Blizzard. 
and how really good core values, culture, and philosophy helped Blizzard become very successful. And for me, this article is a must read, especially with a lot of the nonsense that we're seeing in our industry right now. So definitely highly recommend that people not only read this article, but think very deeply and, and really look in the mirror because uh, I, I definitely think that this is a problem impacting our industry today. Uh, any thoughts, Eric? Yeah, you know, this kind of list just breaks my heart just to hear him talk about the uh, Blizzard of old, you know. I. I I kind of just feel like this is the end of the era for Blizzard after Morheim's left. Um, I'm not sure they can abide by the principles that he kind of laid out uh, without the stewardship of Morheim. You know, I think Jay will do the best he can, but there's such a lot of pressure from Bobby and the rest of the executive team at Activision to make this asset, quote unquote, perform. Um, and that just means like more McKenzie and Bane douchebags telling Blizzard how to make games. And it's just not a great situation to be in, you know. Um, uh, I'm hoping, you know, like things will get turned around here. And, you know, the one thing I do think is that BlizzCon is going to be one of the most, the best in a long time. Uh, you know, they're going to have a lot to announce. And so I'm going to look kind of wrong, I think, at this point uh, when, when BlizzCon happens in, I don't know, October, November. Because they're going to have basically the WoW expansion from, from the A-Team, uh, likely a Diablo 4 for PC reveal uh, for reels this time. And, uh, you know, potentially, potentially a, a sequel to Overwatch. So, and they will also likely talk a lot about mobile, but uh, I think I would tread lightly with the crowd at BlizzCon with mobile stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, all these projects seem miles away, right? Uh, I don't think Diablo makes it next year. I think it's probably the following year if, at best. Overwatch sequel feels like kind of like a fever dream after watching all the success of PUBG and Fortnite. You know, what are they gonna do with Overwatch to compete, you know, in, a, in the modern times? Um, you know, I really want to be wrong here. I'm a huge fanboy. You know, I'm still playing World of Warcraft. I was playing right when we were doing this podcast and ignoring my fellow podcasters. But uh, but I, I actually need some evidence, um, not just announcements at BlizzCon, but some execution to overcome this feeling of dread, you know, about <laughs> where Blizzard is headed. Um, I, I, I'm really, I do hope for the best for these guys because I do really like them. But right now, I'm a bit worried, and I and I continue to hear negative things about people leaving. Uh, you know, core guys that are really, really, you know, it, it could be potentially impactful to their ability to execute um, and continue delay, delay, delay. So anyway, that's kind of my take. I I, I think Morheim was a great buffer between uh, corporate ambition and and creative integrity at Blizzard, and without him, I think they're in a in a much uh, tougher spot. Yeah, um, reading through this article, it's absolutely a must read by anybody on this podcast for sure. Um, it was a great discussion on quality and what it really takes. Uh, and also brought me back a lot to kind of the early day Blizzard, even say pre-Blizzard, um, like Lost Vikings on the Super Nintendo. I actually remember playing that game quite a bit and they talked a lot about the iteration um, from that. Um, and I, I think a lot of the early day Blizzard, like Diablo and Lost Vikings and um, that kind of era speaks to me a lot more um, and about a lot of the learnings that they had there in terms of fresh perspective needed, as well as like quality when it's in uh, direct competition, let's say, with things like vision and ambition, stakeholders and timelines. Um, and I think a lot of these game companies that I've been kind of following and, and are huge fans of like Supercell, Blizzard, Nintendo, 
And I've actually been watching plenty of documentaries on companies like Pixar. Um, I think the learnings that they can spread are amazing, um, but they've all gotten to a point where they can basically incubate, incubate games for nearly indefinite timelines and uh, huge kudos to them. Um, but they are each kind of built on sustainable hits and sustainable revenue, which gets them to the point where they can actually do these uh, focuses on quality uh, and not worrying about things like timelines and stakeholders uh, because the trust is there. Um, and I just think it, it also stresses to me that importance, the importance of getting that first hit. Like I've been in plenty of situations as startups, as smaller companies, where we just don't have that luxury. Like literally the, the doors will close if we don't get the game out by a certain point. Um, so uh, quality is a lot more subjective at that point. It becomes a lot deeper of a discussion. Um, so it is very much up to that, getting that first hit, pushing your team towards it, you know, doing as much as you can to, um, just so that you can eventually shift um, towards this type of model, like Supercell, Blizzard, Nintendo, and Pixar can actually hit. Uh, also, interesting note from this article was um, he did the math in terms of launch rate at Blizzard. He said 50% of the games that they develop actually launch. Um, and that actually seems high to me. Um, being a part of enough companies that say um, publicly that they kill plenty of games internally, 50% actually seems pretty high. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, th this speaks to me about actually how much time they must give each one of those games to actually build out their identity. So if you think even about something like Titan, um, right, like that might not have launched, but it was clear that that team was given enough time um, as well as enough you know, space to be able to step back and then shift focus over to Overwatch. And I think sometimes with this kind of like kill things internally, uh, you can get a bit uh, jumpy. <laughs> um, one quick comment on this is that the one thing that Morheim had the entire time, at least for the last 15 years, was revenue from WoW, which was a billion five, billion six at its peak or something even more, I can't remember exactly. So that gives you a lot of covering fire to do these projects. Their, their teams, as far as I understand it, were set up, but that they're very small, like by, by standards of other developers, like 40 to 70 persons teams that are working really hard on, on different concepts and stuff. But they just, they didn't have, they have a lot of support staff around them, but the actual development teams are relatively small and relatively nimble, I suppose. But they were given lots of time and, and, and money in order to develop uh, these, these, these concepts and these ideas. So that, that, I mean, that's a nice thing that benefit to have compared to others that are kind of like, you know, feet of the fire to get things done. So, yeah. But if you think about like early day blizzard, they launched Diablo. Diablo is kind of their first big certified hit and how sustainable that hit was, which then allowed them to launch Starcraft, another huge sustainable hit, which then allowed them to move towards, well, no, I would, or they also have Warcraft, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. I, when you say sustainable, you know, we were just talking about subscriptions, right? The reason subscriptions are amazing is because it's recurring revenue forever and ever, you know, it yeah. goes up and down, right? But that's really sustainable. But when you sell something like StarCraft, it goes up and then it goes down, right? That's not a sustainable franchise. That can't give you cover fire to do other things, you know? So I, I understand what you're saying. But in the case of Diablo and StarCraft, didn't they have like absolutely crazy long sales? No. Um, tales? No, they didn't. Okay. I, always I don't think so. I, I, I think 
I mean, it didn't go away, but it certainly wasn't something like a subscription, right? You know, and it's also like, what, it takes 10 years for them to get out sequels, right? So it's not like yeah. they had a recurring, you know, cadence of, of development. This is a whole Activision's problem with Blizzard in general. It's like, they want cadence. They want a game every year, every two years, right? That's just not the way Blizzard was set up. And mm-hmm. part of it was because they have all the subscription, plus their franchises are built to have epic, you know, new releases that, you know, that innovate and, and update. And that's the way they've, they've rolled for, for their history. So again, my point is that WoW gave them cover, fi- you know, revenue, like recurring revenue that allowed them to maintain this culture, right? And, and the reality of the business, I would say, has changed since then. But that doesn't mean I want them to change. That's what the McKenzie guys are seeing, right? I mean, it's like these guys, like you could imagine, I could write this presentation in like 30 minutes, right? You say, <laughs> look at how big the mobile industry is. Look at how well Blizzard does in China. Let's make mobile games for China and the US. Like it's so simple. Like you just throw up numbers and percentages and oh my God, we could dominate, right? It's like the whole Nintendo argument back in the day. Like it's really easy for these douches to do that, right? But that, 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 that's not the reality of the way Blizzard works or or makes games. And it's not... It's not a recipe for success in my view. And that's what continues to worry me about what's going on over there. But anyway, what do you think, uh, Mr. Miska? Uh, well, th- you, I think you nailed it. And you said, this is not how Blizzard makes games. And that's, that's to me, the culture. And the culture of a, of a games company is how do we make games? Uh, companies that, that I mentioned, like Supercell and, and some other ones, they, they have a very strong culture. And that culture is around making games and it's very clear for everybody and these are very straightforward rules for everybody in the company to follow now usually you know in my personal experience i've worked with a couple of companies that were going through pretty rough times and and changes and usually these changes happen on top management side just like with blizzard at the moment and once you have these changes in the top management it really leads quickly to changes in the culture and the fact is the culture it really does take a long time to form, but it can be destroyed in, in moments. And it needs strong leaders in all levels to, to, truly, to, to truly work. And then these leaders need to be not only, you know, not only talking about the culture, but they need to be showing the example. And to me, it, it, I don't know anything about Blizzard, honestly. It, I mean, I know, of course, their games. I don't, I don't know really people there, but it, it really sounds like the company is transforming from a games company into a corporation. You have a lot of new people coming in and they're not, they're not really taking in the traditional Blizzard, Blizzard culture, but they're rather coming in with targets and goals. And, and that leads, leads to a moment where, where the way Blizzard is making games today is not how they were making them before. And that leads quickly to what Eric was talking about, these charts and pies and percentages and opportunities. And it leads to a situation where instead of this Blizzard that Morhaime is talking about, where they work on a game for a really long time, they focus on greatness, they focus on releasing something that they're really proud of, it leads to something where you're following others. And we can see that in, in sort of Blizzard's mobile games. They're, in a sense, doing smart analysis on the RPG market, and they're following with their own version of it. And it's, you know, it's nothing... It doesn't look like anything groundbreaking. It looks awesome, but but it's it's very numbers driven. And once once this type of s- stuff happens, it it kind of creates um, a loss uh, of of belief in in your own skills because instead of a company that creates new, you're a company that follows others, and that leads to loss of the culture of of you know of what you're making because you're making what everybody else is making, and, and this type of a loss create leads to a point where you start losing talent. And as you start losing your best talent that is able to create new games, 
well, that's when the decline happens. So, yeah, Eric, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you know more people of Blizzard than I do, but since I'm the rumor guy, the, the rumor that I've heard, and I don't, I don't know that many people of Blizzard, but from what I've heard from some of the folks of Blizzard is that the decline wasn't when Morheim left. It was really when they brought in this guy from Microsoft and then, and then he brought in like this whole cadre of Microsoft douchebags. And then that really just like <laughs> Blizzard, but that, that, that's just the rumor. <laughs> I, I bet JK is not going for lunch to Blizzard anytime soon. So yeah, yeah. I thank hope you God. enjoyed your visits at Blizzard. <laughs> no, thank, thank God my memory is so bad that I don't know the names of the people that, that are really causing havoc there. But I, I know First of all, the, I, I believe the CFO who left recently and also the COO who is, who I think is still at Blizzard, was drop shipped from uh, Bobby's team to help manage Blizzard. Those, those are the ones that I'm talking about that are like the McKenzie. I didn't know them. I don't know about the Microsoft thing, but they are McKenzie to Bain type people that are basically dictating, you know, how things should be working there and making crazy ex ex expectations. Like the one data point I heard was that like last year, like during this expansion, they wanted to get 50% more subscriptions from World of Warcraft player base, right? Which is freaking ridiculous, right? Because there's just no way you can grow <laughs> at any level at this stage of the game that old, right? So anyway, it's stuff like that, but I'm not going to comment anymore. But what I will say is that, um, that yeah, the, the place has changed and I'm, I'm I still continue to be worried about it, but let's move on <laughs> to my favorite subject, Glue Mobile. <laughs> oh, no. no. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know why you guys keep giving me these articles. You just want me to go. <laughs> You're just instigating. Okay. So what's, what's interesting is I actually agree upon with this article to some degree. Um, so Glue Mobile, highly likely to beat estimates for Q2 in 19. Okay. So here we go. This is another like seeking alpha story, which I really wish we were not using. <laughs> but, but you know, these guys are good. Like some of them are really like kind of looking at it closely, but a lot of times they're just pushing their book, meaning like he's long glue. So he wants everyone to be excited about glue. Um, now the problem with this guy is that he clearly doesn't have access to sensor tower or app Annie. So he's using rankings as a proxy, which is super dangerous, generally speaking. Um, and he's doing all this crazy calculations of average rankings year over year, et cetera, et cetera. So but is it basically his conclusions are that both Tap Sports and Design Home are up year over year, 36 and 34%, which is not accurate according to Sensor Tower, right? It's up more like 10% year over year. So they are going to come in line or beat current expectations for the quarter, I think, um, but basically more in line, not, not beat by too much, right? Um, but again, one of the reasons that this stock has gotten hit so much is because they basically capitulated to the street that Design Home is not growing in the back half, right? And now that WWE is a huge miss, it makes it even tougher to grow in the back half. So the good news here is that Diner Dash is performing extremely well. Um, I don't think it's enough to get to their growth targets in the back half, but if they beat by a little bit, oh, sorry. So just to put the numbers in perspective. So if they beat by a little bit like this quarter, which I would I expect, they've grown only 4% year over year in the first half. So in order for them to hit current consensus of 450 million for the year, they would have to grow 30% in the back half to get to these revenue targets. It's freaking impossible. The only way that happens is if uh, Disney is a much huge bigger hit than, I, than, than it's even possible, frankly. Um, so 
So here's the real question. This is this is like the arbitrage that you have to think about when when you're doing these things, and this is what drives people in uh, investment community completely bonkers, right? So even if I know what I'm saying is true and that there's no way they hit this target, the company could come to this earnings call and say they could punt it till next quarter. They could say we beat our consensus, we're reiterating our guide because we're expecting stronger performance in the back half, right? They could say that because that's reasonable. Even though I imagine none of them believe that, but they could say that the stock is going to get jumped really high until next quarter when they don't meet these expectations. And then they have to capitulate the fact that they're not going to get to the 450 and then the stock gets crushed again. So I think there's a 50-50 chance that they go either way on this. And so it's a little bit scary from a perspective if you're short the stock or whatever. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of capitulating that the things could be there's no way they can hit the 450 million target for this year. It's almost impossible. Um, and but I don't know exactly when they're going to basically capitulate and 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 be straight with the street. That's what I'm saying. What do you think, J.K.? Uh, so for me, I don't have too much to add here. I, I do think that it's some good news that the fire firecraft and Playrix UA pissing match has come to an end. So. Definitely some good news for Blue in terms of being able to acquire users for their CrowdStar titles. And, you know, we've already spoken quite a lot about Glue, and I think we'll probably uh, save more commentary and discussion for, uh, for, you know, later on when we bring Jeff Cohen back on. But um, I still fundamentally believe that Glue's biggest upside is, is completely tied to their ability to scale CrowdStar titles. I, I think I've mentioned before that, you know, the very, very simple way that I look at Glue is, is really... Um, number one, uh, live ops and con continued scale on CrowdStar, which they have, quite frankly, outperformed my expectations. Number two, new game dev, which I've been negative on because of San Francisco and to some degree, uh, well, and because of the typical sort of zero to one problem that seems to plague these larger companies, uh, Zynga being, you know, uh, a good example as well. And um, finally, just, uh, you know, I, I still think there's going to be we still haven't seen a lot of competitive pressure on the CrowdStar titles. So, you know, I've been waiting for like a Manchington mansion to show up for the CrowdStar titles, but we haven't seen that, but who knows? There is one. Oh, is there? Yeah, it's by, uh, um, what's that, San Francisco? Storm 8. No, that was a puzzle game, dude. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm talking, I'm talking Manchington mansion level, you know, sort of app-loving, aka Firecraft type level competition. <laughs> oh, you mean a marketing play? <laughs> but anyway, Michigan, what do you think? Um, interesting. Uh, when when you look at the revenues of of Glue, they're they're pretty steady. Uh, they're pretty steady. I mean, Design Home is by far their biggest game, bringing forty four percent of all the revenue of the year. Um, quite steady. It hasn't grown. It's still still the same situation. It's kind of big in the West and especially U.S., but not really resonating anywhere else. A lot of companies have tried to put com competitors to it. You know, some of them with a spin, whether it's match three, whether it's more story driven, but nothing has really stuck. So that's that's interesting if, if anybody can can truly um, outperform that game or, or challenge it. But it's kind of the same thing as with the COVID fashion, which is not a crowd star game. Um, that one is, is also steadily bringing 15% of all the uh, the company's revenue. So so overall, the, uh, the, the CrowdStar acquisition is, I mean, it's fantastic. It's 60% of all Glue's revenues are coming from CrowdStar. Uh, Kardashian as well, pretty steady. I think the seasons are running. I don't really follow. I don't really keep up with the Kardashians, but it seems like every time they they release new new bullshit, they, the game resonates pretty well with with the audience. 
And MLB is back really strong. Currently the second top, second best grossing game in Glue's portfolio. Really, really good start for MLB. Far, you know, it could be a Madden scenario for that, but it was, it was actually, you know, the game is doing really well. Now we have three other games that the company has that are, have the, uh, the potential uh, to either, you know, make it or break it for the company. So number one is what Eric was talking about. That's Disney Sorcerer's Arena. Uh, it's still, I believe, in soft launch. I've played the game. It is absolutely fantastic in terms of quality, in terms of uh, gameplay, in, in terms of everything. Like it's a true um, quality game. It's an RPG game with, with all the Disney characters and more. And just it's so well made. Uh, I'm not playing that game, though, anymore. It's it's um it's I, for somewhat reason. I love RPG games, but I just couldn't care less about, um, you know, these characters that is like mickey mouses and and you know all these classical characters they, they they make the game feel childish for me i think i would enjoy it more with without an ip or with with a little bit more serious ip now it just it feels too childish for me but as a game as a quality of game it's it's absolutely fantastic now the second one is uh diner dash so i think they released a new diner dash version i haven't played it uh yet and glue hasn't really you know succeeded too well when it comes to these uh, diner games or these uh, time management games, it's actually being outbeaten by most of the competitors. So it's kind of like a third in, in the uh, the category. So if that game does well, it, it has a it has a good potential in, in a relatively good and even growing time management, the sort of a cooking uh, category. And the third one is what what Eric already touched upon is this WWE game, and it seems to be. Um, a miss. Uh, it has been launched for the second time. It was launched the first time, pulled back, didn't really resonate well. It's coming back again and it's not really performing as strongly. And oh, I forgot to mention that there's a fourth one that they've been talking about, and that is the Deer Hunter. They always are uh, keen on, on launching that game. But looking at the history of Deer Hunters, it hasn't really done as well as since the Deer Hunter, what, 2015 or something? I think it was Deer Hunter 2015, which really. Uh, played well and after that it, it just hasn't been as much of a success so looking at these games the uh, the sources arena the wwe darner dash and and the uh the the, the deer hunter uh it's kind of it's kind of questionable that they're they would be able to grow with these but i i'd stay positive i'm positive that, that the disney sources arena will do reasonably well I'm thinking wrong, about like three, wrong, three, wrong, three, wrong, two, wrong. three to five million a month at least. Come on, no, man. No, it's, it's fantastic. No. You're out of your goddamn mind. There's no <laughs> way. There's no way that this game scales, dude. It's a mismatch of the Why? audience. It's not that well of a game design. And I, it's, it's, well, well, it's if you beta compare it to speak for themselves. Yeah. Well, if you compare it to are worse than WWE, that's how bad it is. Right. And WWE is a train wreck. <laughs> so they get more downloads, but the, still the monetization is bad, and they're not going to get as much. The, the retention is going to be terrible. It's game know. over, dude. Game I, over. I, I believe in. I believe in Sorcerer's Arena. I believe in that game. I think. I believe they will, will do reasonably well. Miska, I have a feeling that people will trust me. <laughs> I want to stay positive. I want to stay. I want to believe that people. The perpetual optimist. Hope. Like, hope is not a method. Okay. <laughs> Well, neither is despair. <laughs> the game is good. <laughs> All right, moving on. Yeah, keeping right. it positive. HQ trivia, Mishka. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wait, 
All right. We have to have, actually make a pact. We have to have at least one positive article out of the four every week. Okay. Because this is not looking good. <laughs> oh, subscription well, was good. Subscription was good. All right. JK is, is in charge of these articles. So, so, um, producer, <laughs> producer, more positive articles. I, I, hey, I just check what's trending. All right. <laughs> I'm all about the data. <laughs> God damn it. Negativity. Anyway. So, uh, well, the next article, uh, this was on TechCrunch, and it talks about HQ uh, Trivia, which is a company by Intermedia Labs. And, and Intermedia Labs is, is really, the, it's really about its founders. And the founders are the, 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 the Russ Yusupov and Colin Krall, who sought out to attract investors and venture capitalist firms to fund HQ with the internet of landing a post-money valuation as high as 100 million. So in fact, they raised 12.5 million off the bat. And these guys, I believe, were one of the key guys from Vine, if I'm correct. And they left Twitter and they started um, Intermedia Labs, which is behind the game HQ Trivia. So um, the pair split from Twitter and, and that, was, um, that caused some issues. So the crawl departed the social media site in 2012 after accusation of incompetence and alleged inappropriate behavior towards women. And Yusupa was laid off later on in 2015. So in December 2016, uh, December 2018, Kroll, one of the uh, co-founders, was actually found dead from an apparent drug overdose in his Manhattan apartment. So this is one of the founders. And, and this turmoil about this company just continued So in, in all the major outlets. And it, it kind of felt like... Uh, like a serious episode in Silicon Valley, uh, the, the HBO show. So there, there was this coup of trying to oust the, the CEO who after, uh, after um, Kroll Yusupov kind of took over and there was this long letter that the employees wrote about what kind of dirtbag of allegedly this Yusupov is and, and they never sent it to the, to the investors, but somehow it leaked to the press and and then they were replacing the host of HQ. Everybody remembers there was this really fun comedian that was that was hosting it. And there was some issues, and again, all this dirty laundry was naturally gone through in, in like TechCrunch and all these all these media outlets. It's crazy. But most importantly, why we're reading about it is that the, the HQ was actually really successful at one point. And it got 15 million installs. Uh, nevertheless, only 2.5 million in revenue. So let's go to this article. And this is the background of the article. So it's dirty laundry for the past year. The founder overdoses. Uh, the, the, the employees tried to kick out the CEO. And the latest turn in this, I don't even know where you're covering this. This is so sad. Later turn in this one is that HQ Trivia is struggling. No shit, TechCrunch. So uh, after a mutiny failed to oust its CEO, so downloads per month are down by only 92% versus the last June, according to Sensor Tower. And now four sources, four sources confirmed that HQ laid off staff members this week. One said about 20% of the staff was let go, and another said six to seven employees were departing that aligns with Diggy Day reporter Kerry Flynn's tweet that seven employees were let go, bringing HQ to fewer than 30, shrinking from 35 to 28 staffers would be a drop of 20%. Well calculated. All right. The, so this will leave the company in shorthand as it attempts to diversify revenue with the upcoming launch of monthly subscriptions. The company tweeted from the account for its second game, the Wheel of Fortune style HQ words. Now, going back. All right. So the biggest issue here is that HQ was never a free-to-play game. 
Um, you know, and w- when we talk about free-to-play game, there's some basics, some basics of making a free-to-play game. And that is, well, you have the early progress that hooks you to play the game. And the progress usually is really fast. And as you play a little bit longer, the progress slows down and you're actually not making progress as fast as possible. And most importantly, there's a social element where you're comparing your progress to the progress of other players. So if you think about a farming game, it's your farm. How, how your farm is looking versus Eric's farm, who's been playing more and paying, and then I'm trying to keep up with him, and we're playing together. There's different competitive mechanics and different collaborative mechanics. And the monetization occurs when you try to either stay ahead or keep up with your social graph. Now, HQ was very social, but it was social in that sort of a Pokemon type of Pokemon Go type of way, where it's more word of mouth. So you see a lot of players just playing together at the office because there were two games a day and everybody everybody kind of gathered together and tried to answer these questions. Uh, but really, going back to it, like, why the hell didn't they build social systems around this natural behavior that people had? So that's one. The second part is progress. Uh, the way you people that played this game is like you had two shows a day and you had to log in at one time. And, you know, if you were outside U.S., they, they were pretty much an impossible time. But nevertheless, this game was very English speaking. So it was very much skewed towards U.S. audience. That's fine. But two games a day is, is kind of not enough. Most importantly, though, in progress, this game had no in-game progression. You basically logged in. There was a show and you tried to answer right or wrong. If you answer wrong, you're kicked out and, and that's it. And then you try again in like 12 hours or 10 hours or eight hours, whatever it is. There was no leagues. There was no leaderboards. You couldn't compare your streaks between your friends. And, and there was no encouragement to keep on playing and playing. It's like if your friends in your office were playing this, then you played with them. But there's nothing else. There's nothing that keeps you, you know, completing the, the, the you know, eight games a week or something like that that we get a prize. And finally, when you don't have any type of progress, you don't have any kind of social systems, what kind of monetization can you have? You know, it's, it's, um, there's, there's no other competition that, that was going on rather than the one round that you were playing. And in order to monetize, if they would have had that social graph, if they would have had a sustaining competition in terms of leagues, they could have monetized through you know, having players play more, whether it's lives or revise or additional quizzes for subscribers that can play actually more because they're subscribers. But most importantly, they could have monetized through status. And because there's no progression in this game, there was absolutely no status that players could show off. And when there's no status, there's really no monetization. So this is this is kind of my take on this. And it's it's a little it's a little bit of a sad story. And it's it's kind of saddest thing is that the TechCrunch and all these other outlets are covering it. And so our producer, Joe, makes us cover the story as well. So thanks, Joe. You're welcome. Eric. I don't know much about this company or this product, to be honest, but I, I looked at the Sensor Tower data and it's like 50 million downloads and 2 million in revenue. So I imagine they have some advertising around that as well, but it seems pretty terrible to me. Um, you know, I think the subscription revenue, which is kind of what this article is about, I mean, it could work for the dedicated few, but it seems like more of a desperation move to find a way for perhaps another hope is another hope, false hope, perhaps. Um, but this kind of reminds me of that Xbox 360 game show. I don't know if you remember Xbox Live Primetime was this, uh, was this push for uh, Xbox to bring uh, game shows to the, the platform. The first game was One Versus 100. And, uh, but it ended up being the only show that was produced. Uh, it's kind of the same thing, scheduled event, you know, one person was chosen, the other hundred were the mob and everyone else was the crowd. 
and they were eliminated as their answers to the questions incorrectly and offered Microsoft points as, as collateral. It lasted 13 weeks, two seasons, and it was pulled before season three. Uh, and basically the reason was the game wasn't making enough money to cover the costs uh, of uh, people to write the new trivia, trivia and host. So, and they were supported by advertising as well. I, I think just the fundamental problem with this particular space is monetizing trivia is really hard. Right. So I think the last time I remember a really successful trivia game and anybody can correct me if I'm wrong on this is like back in the old days on the PC with you don't know Jack, which I think is still around to this day. But it was sold on PC for like 1999 or 20, 2999. And since then, I think I don't know of any trivia game that's had a lot of success out there. Um, I just think it's a really challenging thing to monetize uh, and to ask people to pay for, particularly in the Internet age, I suppose. But I don't know. What do you think, Adam? So you know what the top monetizing quiz game is actually? Um, what is it? It's a Japanese gotcha-driven RPG game where the core gameplay, instead of doing turn-based battling, is trivia. It was the weirdest game I think I've ever played in my life. Dude. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> These Japanese people are crazy, dude. Come on. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that one was pretty funny. Uh, yeah, Jackbox Games is definitely still around. I think they're cranking out um, all those different like party box games uh, on every single platform they can get onto. I think they were even on the Ouya, if you remember that platform. Um, but yeah, trivia games as a model is super difficult. I think the, the top mobile game, at least, is Trivia Crack by Edimax. Um, and the biggest problem with trivia is content, and they managed to solve it with a lot of user-generated content, where a lot of that was coming from their community itself. Uh, I think that was a smart way to do it, but um, yeah, plenty of infrastructure around managing UGC. Um, yeah, and I remember when this came out, um, HQ Trivia, and there was this huge trend around building out live games. Um, you know, games that everybody would come up around 7 p.m. and everybody would do the quiz show together. Um, and then there was some, you know, pay for playing kind of aspect. Um, it was interesting, but everybody was trying to convince me that this was going to be a thing but as we've already talked about everything about this design goes counter towards what retention typically looks like in a mobile game um word of mouth of this is amazing and but to me it, it seemed like a lot closer to a comp of like draw something do you remember that mm -hmm. zynga acquisition way back in the days or words with friends at least had components and if you look about how they've kind of transitioned since then it's been actually by trying to make sure that there's enough content in between playing with your friends, right? Uh, you get paired up with other players. Um, and I think that's really the biggest issue is that this category never really answered the question about how, what you were doing in between these, these quiz things. You had this amazing initial spike of retention, um, but players are obviously gonna drop off when it's out of their mind, when they're not playing it throughout the day, um, when they have other mobile games that will let them play whenever they want. Um, as well, this category never answered about how it was going to monetize. And I think, like, what has it been, like, two years since this thing kind of popped? And now, finally, they're launching subscriptions, which, you know, to be honest, makes a little bit of sense. But it's a little too little too late, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, my, my sense from this trend is that I, I still think um, having game modes that are, say, scheduled in real time could still be a, be a thing. Um, if you think about Top 11, which is a, a mobile game, very successful by Nordius, um, they do a great thing where they actually have a, um, the main game mode is that your football teams that you're managing um, are have scheduled times when they play, and then you're kind of managing your team between them. 
Um, that works really, really well for them. Um, having real money as a prize pool, you know, that could still be a thing um, as long as it's kind of avoiding legislation. Um, but not having anything to do between sessions or, you know, <laughs> monetizing off hints. No, that's not going to work. Not in a million years. Uh, Joe. Sure. So, yeah, unfortunately, things do sound super grim from the article, but I would say the, the incredible thing to me is you still have some game studios trying to copy their models. So I would say that's even more insane and more incredible to believe that, that than, you know, sort of what's happening at HQ Trivia. Also, you know, I, I may get a new nickname here, which is Comments Guy, because I'm always reading comments, and so I just wanted to read a couple of comments from that article, and the first is from Alexander Jeffrey, who stated, I used to play HQ, but they refused to pay me the hundred-some bucks I've won since last August. They don't respond to support requests, emails, or tweets. I've heard they haven't paid out their recent big winners. There's also another comment that also suggested that the service is plagued with glitches and that, quote, HQ is infamous for not honoring its payouts. Anyway, I, I you know, I think it was HQ Tree was an interesting model. And now, you know, the, the company is, is playing at max difficulty, basically on nightmare mode to try and make the company successful. So wish those guys the best of luck. It would be an incredible story if they could pull this through, but it does seem like they've got some challenges ahead. And, you know, based on the comments, it, it does seem like things are uh, pretty grim over there as well. And I think with that, I think we're done. Any, any right. concluding comments from anybody? Um, what, kind of, what kind of episodes are we coming out this week or later this week? So just for readers out there, we are starting a little mini-series on game publishers. So I'm uh, going to be talking with, uh, and we just record our first one with uh, Scopely. So keep an eye out for that. But Wait, who's, I, it with, who's it with with Scopely? Uh, Javier Ferreira. <laughs> oh, the CEO, the really handsome guy? Uh, yeah, 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 that guy. Oh, he's so, he's way too good looking. That guy. <laughs> don't, don't hate. He's too, don't he, hate. No, I'm, I'm giving him all the mad props, dude. The guy's got <laughs> charisma, dude. He's got that LA charisma, man. He can get anything done. Right. Yeah. Any deal happened, right? Yeah, no, it, it was a good interview. He uh, he did a great job. So uh, yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. Look at those so cheekbones, man! Can you see those cheekbones? <laughs> like, unbelievable. He was a model, right? <laughs> or even CEO. That, he was a no. Model. That's how people. That's how people look in Europe, dude. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I swear, I'm I'm almost sure I heard he was a model back in the day. He did like commercials and stuff. Maybe oh. we can find a video and post it before the uh, interview. <laughs> How about that? Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> All right, yeah, handsome. So stay tuned. We got amazing, amazing episodes coming in on mobile publishing. Uh, J.K. and I have been recording some of them. We'll record all of them and probably release them back to back. Really good interviews with CEOs of the companies. Uh, so you're going to hear from from the top, and we are we're asking real questions. This is not any buttery, you know, kind of like. Yeah, these are really good interviews, right, J.K.? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think to, to Javier's credit, he he didn't he didn't shy away from anything, so that was, no. that was great. Well, I think the fact that I'm not doing the interviews is probably <laughs> that it's uh, your. You want to jump on? You're soft balling <laughs> no. these guys. No, no, no. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm out. Real question. This is too long. I'm out. Bye, right, bye. <laughs> See you guys later. Bye. bye. <laughs>